0: welcome to the internet history podcast i'm your host brian mccullough this is chapter five supplemental episode seven a conversation with joe mccamley Joe is one of the more prominent names in modern digital marketing and advertising. He's had major roles at Digitas, at AOL in its modern incarnation, and he's the co-founder of the Wonder Factory. I wanted to talk to Joe about his time with Modem Media, where he was one of the creative forces behind the development of the first banner ads that premiered alongside the launch of Hotwire. The 20th anniversary of these first banner ads is coming up at the end of the month, and I'm trying to put together a special episode where I'll edit together interviews from several different people, all for one comprehensive piece that will tell the whole story. As I told Joe after this interview, my original intention was just to use his conversation as a part of that piece. But as you'll see, our discussion went in such wonderful directions delving deep into the nature of modern advertising and the future of marketing in general, that I decided this deserved to be its own standalone episode. If you're working in digital media today, I think it's pretty much required listening. So, let's have it. Here's Joe McCambly. Joe McCambly, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, uh, just to start off... um, can you give me a little bit of your background, how you how you ended up come, uh, getting into the the advertising game?
1: In the advertising game? Wow. <laughs> <That's>...
0: <laughs> well, how you got into advertising before the web.
1: All right. It, 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 actually, it's a, it's a long story. It goes back to around fourth grade. Um, I was home sick from school one day, and I asked my mother if I could watch TV, and she said no, draw one. So I drew a TV set, and... Uh, Instead of, of putting a, a an image of a TV show on the on the TV that I drew, I actually put a commercial on there. And it was one of this these old classic commercials. Um I don't know if you're aware of the, the product called off. It's an insecticide. And yeah, yeah. There used to be this guy, you know, they had this this fish tank filled with mosquitoes and he'd put his arm into the, the fish tank and all these mosquitoes would land on his arm and then he'd take his arm out and he'd spray off on it and he'd put his arm back into the fish tank. And uh, none of the mosquitoes would land on it. And, and even in fourth grade, I just remember thinking, oh, that is an amazing product. And and just being kind of captivated by that that demonstration of, of what the product could do. So I drew this fish tank with an arm in it and no mosquitoes on it. So it's, um, you know, and, and later on as I would, would go through uh, the years in school in fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, instead of writing English compositions, I always wrote radio scripts or TV ads and um, would perform them in front of the class. And uh, I think in my, my fourth grade yearbook, the teacher wrote, you know, someday Joe will either be in prison or advertising. And fortunately, I, I ended up in advertising. Um, I, I, I studied advertising. Actually, I actually went to the University of San Francisco and studied marketing with a specialty, specialty in advertising and, and dreamed of, of graduating from school and being a copywriter. And, and nobody told me throughout that entire advertising program uh, in college that you, you needed to have a portfolio to get hired with an advertising agency. So I graduated without a portfolio and it it took me about, um, seven or eight years of working in other jobs before I, I finally, um, fulfilled the dream, put together a portfolio and, uh, landed a job with a a small agency in Boston called Ingalls, Quinn and Johnson. And they did advertising for Converse sneakers and TJ Maxx and, um, ocean spray cranberry. And, uh, because I was the, the newest copyright on the scene, I, I was relegated to some of, of maybe what what people would think of as the lesser attractive clients. So I worked on um, – one of the clients was called Symbolics, and they uh, were one of the early makers of hardware around artificial intelligence. Um, data Translation was another client that did uh, image um, – uh, uh, what would you call it um, – image modification software, you know, and, and, and video editing software, Mm -hmm. uh, Honeywell, Honeywell, Honeywell Bull was another, um, of client. And, and I think while there were a lot of people in advertising that would consider those really boring clients, it was, a it was a really exciting time, you know, image editing software, um, had just been invented about that time. Data translation was one of the first companies that made image editing software. And I was just amazed at what, what those products were able to do. So I, I kind of, um, fell into the tech waters at that point and became enamored with with that kind of advertising
0: right so that was just accidental just by those clients it sort of put your toe in the tech waters
1: exactly i knew nothing about technology until i started until i started writing you know tv and radio and print ads for for some of these companies and just just became very fascinated um i i left that agency and went to a another place called bronner slasberg humphrey which was um more of a direct response agency because I really wanted to get schooled in the analytics of advertising. Um, Bronner Slossberg eventually became what's called Digitas today. Right. Right. Um, and I, I spent about, uh, three or four years there, um, getting an education in, um, you know, driving response and data and analytics and testing and learning and improving your, your work based on, on results. And, uh, one of my uh, big clients that I worked on at the time was Mm AT&T. So, uh, after a few years of working with a, a specific client, a guy named Bill Clawson, um, he he told me about this company that he had started working with in Westport, Connecticut, named Modem Media. And he asked if I would interview with them because they were they were looking for a creative director. And I had never heard of Modem at the time. And I, I went down and talked to them. I went down from Boston and talked to them in Westport. And at the time, um, you know, they they were basically creating um, Customized faxes for businesses. So, if you were, say, an AT and T sales rep, and you were visiting with a customer, um, oftentimes you would leave this slick, you know, four-color sales sheet behind that, you know, talked about the product benefits, because they were all printed in bulk. They had um, 800 numbers on them. So, when that prospect called the 800 number and ordered the product, AT and T would get the money, but the sales rep wouldn't get any of the credit for the sale. Mm -hmm. So, one of the products that um, Modem made at the time was this customized fax software where the, uh, the sales rep, rather than handing a, a four-color slick sheet to the, the customer, could fax them the, in, the follow-up information, and the fax would contain the uh, sales rep's direct phone number. Um, so when I went to Modem, that was, that was one of the first products that I worked on, and, and I can remember at the time sitting in my backyard at 3 in the morning wondering if I had completely destroyed my career by working on faxes but you would go to these sales conventions that that had you know 2018 T sales reps on, on in the room and you'd be introduced and they'd all give you a standing ovation because you made a significant impact and the, the amount of money that they were bringing to their family it was kind of amazing
0: but I mean you know faxes <clears throat> are kind of uh, cutting-edge technology for what what is this like 94 95
1: <laughs> yeah, 1994 yes yeah. state of the art right That's right right, right.
0: <laughs> so um, was Motomedia? Did it specialize in in technology marketing, or were was, were the clients technology clients or communications clients like AT and T generally?
1: Um, no, you know, like uh, I I think I I heard you do an interview with Craig Kanerick, and he um he talked about how CORES and Zema was a, a very large client of Mota media. They also um, did work for uh, advertising work actually for J C Penny over the Prodigy network. You know, they did some of the very first email campaigns for for JCPenney. So they, they, they were dealing mostly with consumer-facing brands and um, doing some of the early digital work for, for those brands. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, let me take you back to 1994 then. Um, All right. Did you bring AT&T over with you as a client to Modem Media?
1: No, they were already a client okay. at Modem Media. And uh, they were a small client, but they quickly became one of the larger clients after that banner ran.
0: Right. So how does how does the uh the banner project for Hotwired come about is it are you working with Hotwired or are you working with AT&T and Hotwired came to them how how did all the pieces come together on this
1: You know it's it was 20 it was 20 years ago Brian so some of the details are a little bit bit sketchy for me there were there were kind of four or five conversations that were happening simultaneously so we there, there was a big buzz at, at Modem that um MCI, You know, the the web had already started, the Netscape browser launched, and there were rumors going around that uh, MCI was going to be doing some sort of uh, an amazing digital experience. And nobody knew what it was, but there were just kind of rumors floating around. Um, when you know we we brought that news to AT and T, and that started circulating around the hallways, and and AT and T was trying to figure out what their response would be, and then about this time um, we we also started hearing rumors of, of Wired magazine launching an, an online version, and that there was going to be sponsorship involved. So there was just kind of this perfect storm of events that um, created a, a sense of urgency around we've got to be doing something on on Hot Wired magazine when it launches, um, kind of got to beat mci to the punch and uh it's got to be good go ahead no that that that, that was basically it. it it's a you know I, I think in hindsight we we talk about those days as if we had this grand plan and we were we were executing flawlessly but but a lot of it kind of happened accidentally and and serendipitously. Um, so we we were finally uh, given an approved uh, budget to work on an ad for the, the launch of Hotwired Magazine. At the time, as, as you can imagine, there weren't a lot of people that even knew HTML. Mm-hmm. Um, so we 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 did a search, and we um, we found a company in Westport, Connecticut named Tangent Design. It was run by a guy named Brent, Brent Hood. And he had a, a, a technology leader that was working on the IBM business named um, Otto Timmons, just great guys. And um, Otto had been doing some work with a, a young kid that just came out of the M- MIT Media Lab named Craig Canerick, Craig who eventually went on to found Razorfish. But at, at the time, I think, um, I, I, honestly, I think Craig was living on Otto's sofa or somebody's sofa at the time. I just, I just remember thinking that he was this brilliant kid that really understood technology very, very well. Um, and I was wondering why he wasn't already rich. <laughs> so anyway, um we we, we convened this meeting at tangent. That that's when I first met Craig and and Otto and Brent. Um we talked a little bit about the budget, which which wasn't huge. I remember I mean the, the production budget was probably under twenty thousand dollars for this thing. And uh and, and we just kind of started brainstorming about but what our approach would be. But but what made the brainstorming hard is that we didn't really know anything. We didn't know, you know, what's the color palette? What's the case size that's allowed for the banner? Where, where will it be placed on the page? What will the size of the banner be? Um, you know, what will it link to? Where, when, if it does link to something, where will everything be stored? What will it actually link to? Because there wasn't much to link to at the time. So it was, we, we started the project with, with you know, kind of like the classic white page of paper with nothing on it. And... Um, you know through through conversations with ATT and with Wired and I know Organic was pretty heavily involved at the time with kind of being instrumental in determining um what the structure of the pages would be and the case size and and, and some of those uh, parameters <clears throat> we, we just talked it through and and kind of made it up as we went along it, it's not a very elegant story is it <laughs> but
0: yeah some other people have said that you know a lot of the decisions were based on um you know the the screen resolution sizes at the time you know um the, the old yeah. uh, uh the old you know cathode ray monitors d- don't give you you know a huge amount of pixels and things can you talk a, a little bit about that
1: well yeah i mean i, I remember having a, a big debate and we probably argued for an hour or so about whether or not it should even be a color ad you know because mm-hmm. we, we knew we could make it smaller if it were black and white we knew that there was a large percentage of people out there that only had black and white monitors anyway We knew that if we designed a a color experience, it was going to complicate things because what, you know, how do you design in color so it shows up good on a black and white monitor? But eventually, um, you know, know, we decided that we we were going to cater to the people that had the latest technology. Um, That meant color screens. Yeah, it was still 640 by 480, kind of a a horrendous screen experience. But um, we made the decision to go with color and Mm -hmm. and, and keep it as small as we could because we knew that, that there were still people on, you know, uh, 5,600 baud modems, and, uh, and 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 just just having the page load times be as small as possible would determine whether or not anybody was willing to to go through the experience. Were there any um Were there any
0: examples that you could draw from? I mean, I know that Prodigy had for several years, uh, you know, put ads at the bottom of their screens and things like that. But I mean, was there anything that you could draw from for for guidance or inspiration here?
1: There really wasn't. There, there wasn't. Um, you know, we were familiar with Prodigy, of course, because because Moda Media worked with JCPenney over the Prodigy network. Um, but, but our our perception at the time, I mean, and at, at the time, yes, Prodigy was cutting edge, but there wasn't anything beautiful or elegant about that experience. So, at, at the very least, we wanted to come up with something that was better looking than Prodigy. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, um, once we determined. What the size of the banner was going to be. We we had more conversations around you know traditional billboard advertising and you know what does it take to make a, a billboard successful. You know you've got to keep try to keep your language down to, to seven words. You've you've got to you've got to try to have some sort of a visual that will stand out and capture people's attention. You've got to offer some sort of a benefit. I think we broke some of those rules, but but yeah, I think for me anyway, um, having grown up in advertising, and I, and I think of all the people. On our side of the room that was doing the work on this banner i was the one that came from traditional advertising i thought more in terms of of a of a billboard
0: so it it, it is what is it part of that at&t you will campaign that was running at the time because the the famous (laughs) ad uh that ran uh, in hotwired was have you ever clicked your mouse right here you will so i'm assuming this was to tie in with the you will campaign right
1: Yes, absolutely. We 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 you know, we weren't talking in terms of integrated advertising at the time. Nobody was, but but we we knew that AT&T was spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the You Will campaign. There was uh, incredibly high awareness of the campaign. So we wanted to take advantage of that. You know, we figured if we only have seven words on this banner or, or whatever, how many of our words it turned out, we we had to refer to something that people would immediately recognize as something good. So, um at the time that that AT and T was running this "you will" campaign, there were there were ads of you know a mother tucking her daughter in over uh, a, a video uh, screen from three thousand miles away, and it showed people driving through toll booths without stopping to pay the toll. That you know, somehow it happened automatically. At the time, it all seemed so fantastically futuristic and almost impossible. Um, and and that, like I said, the because of that, the campaign had a, a, a very high awareness, and I think it represented. Things that gave people hope about technology. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've used uh, uh, examples of those ads. You can find them on YouTube. I'll put them up again for the, for this episode.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, everything that they they mentioned has kind of come true. Pretty much, they're very prescient. Um, how much handholding did you have to do with AT and I, I know that what you ended up doing, and you can explain this, is um, linking the ad to examples of online museums like did you have to handhold at&t to explain what the medium was what it was designed to do that sort of thing
1: you know we we had a a client at AT at&t was a guy named bill claussen and um in 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 the months leading up to the the creation of the first banner we were we were doing a pretty important project with him And, and basically it was a was a client server network. We, we distributed 20,000 laptops to AT&T sales reps so that they could get all their sales materials off of a centralized server, completely updated in real time. Um, and, and the process of that, that's not the internet, what I just described, but it was enough like the internet that this guy had a pretty high awareness of, of what the web was going to be capable of. Um so no, I I don't think we had to hold his hand, but I will say that he he placed an enormous amount of trust in us. Um, th- there wasn't a lot known about the web. Um, there there weren't a lot of facts we could give him, and and I think his direction was t- it, to the extent that you can tie it into this campaign that we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on. And um, if, if you're going to link to people, make sure you link to people that our brand wants to be associated with. So there, there were some pretty heavy approval processes that had to happen at, at 2 in the morning where we were sharing graphics with him so that he could approve this stuff. Um, but mostly he, he put, placed a lot of trust in us.
0: And do you remember what the museums were that you linked to? Did, you linked to museums because AT&T didn't have a site or, or was that just a choice? They wanted to, to, they wanted to experiment
1: yeah really nobody had a site then, except maybe zema i think I think they launched their site in in conjunction with those ads running so that they they could link to the the website yeah so there there really was no site to link to um strategically what we were trying to do we 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 would honestly we would have so many Late night conversations with the brand people at AT and T, literally two in the morning for months prior to this, where we were just talking about the web and what it could mean and what it could mean for communications and what it would mean for people. There was a lot of idealism. There was a lot of dreaming that happened. It was a it was an amazing time, and 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 it it really kind of created some great bonds with with that client. We they there were people at AT and T who felt that the original long distance network that was created in the eighteen hundreds was. Almost the equivalent of the internet. It was it was the first time where massive amounts of people could could kind of remove time, space, and time as a barrier and connect with each other and communicate in real time without a middleman standing between them, like a Morse code operator or something like that. And and they felt that when they launched their first long distance network, that they had an obligation back then that they fulfilled to teach people how to use phones and how to communicate. So they. they, they asked us to try to figure out a way to do the same thing with the internet. You know, there's at at the time that that banner ran, people didn't know what sites were on the web. I mean, some of the most popular sites out there were simply linked lists to to the cool side of the day. Um, So people needed help finding good content. They needed help to figure out how they were going to use the web and what it would mean to them in their future. So the, the reason that we wanted to link to the museums is because a museums had decent content that we could link to, but B, we wanted to give, we, we were sponsoring kind of the arts section of Hot Wired Magazine. I forget what it was called now, but it was, it was focused on the arts. So it made sense to link to museums. And, and we wanted to kind of transport people to places where, you know, they might not otherwise travel at any time in their lives. So we connected. I don't remember all the, the, the museums. We had the Louvre. We had the Andy Warhol Museum. We connected to the Library of Congress. There was a virtual museum, I think, that was only online that was in Scandinavia. Um, and then, then I think at the last minute we added, um, some sort of a survey so we could collect data about the the people that were responding to the ad.
0: Yeah, that, that does lead me to question, um, what, I mean, you, was there any kind of analytics or whatever? I mean, obviously they would have the server logs at HotWired, but were you able to measure the engagement at all with, with the ads?
1: Yeah, the, the, the statistics were, were pretty solid at the time when, uh, and and you would have to to talk to to Bill Kloss and our client to confirm this because he's the one that I I got the data from at the time but in the right in the aftermath when the, when Hotwired first launched and and I don't think this banner the 18t banner is unique I think a lot of the banners on Hotwired got extraordinary click through rates but for about the first couple of weeks it was it bordered between the the high 70s and low 80s for about 2 to 3 weeks um, it settled in for about a two to two and a half month period in the forties, around forty four percent is what Bill told me, and then it slowly declined over time. Mm-hmm. From there,
0: that, that, those are amazing rates for any kind of advertising. But I guess it's because it was brand new, and you know, what the heck, give it a try.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know, you, w- you we did little research at the time, but but the research we did with consumers, you would see that you know they were just clicking all over the page to figure out what was clickable because you know now we all know you know, what a hyperlink is. Now we all know what a button should look like. And, and, and now we all know what the standard conventions are, but at the time they hadn't really been invented. So, you know, people clicked on anything just to see what might lead them somewhere. And then there were also a lot of websites that hid Easter eggs that, you know, wanted you to click on anything to find stuff. So yeah, that was the behavior at the time. People would, would click on anything practically. Um, but, but one of the things I appreciate about that ad and and that we, we heard from Bill Claussen was that, um, that there were, and I don't know how he knew this, but he, and, and we didn't have the term viral at the time, but he spoke of people taking the URL of the ad experience, the landing page, and sharing it by email and having people come in from email links to experience that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that everybody who clicked on the banner shared it, but I think the experience was good enough and led to content that was interesting enough to people that they wanted to share it.
0: Yeah. You you continued to work with uh, AT and T and doing web stuff. Um, you you did uh, some campaigns around the time of the Olympic Games in '96.
1: Oh yeah, we did. It's a that was actually the once that banner ran and and once it 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 was successful, we were often called in by by marketing teams within within AT and T to kind of do some basic education about what the web was and what was possible and give them tours of the web and things like that. And uh, along the way, we um, we were connected actually with the I think it was NW Air at the time was AT&T's traditional agency that had won the contract to um, to do uh, Olympic advertising for AT&T around the Olympic sponsorship and to to build what was called the Global Olympic Village in Atlanta for the '96 games. Um, and they brought us in and introduced us to a guy named Russ Natochi, who was the at the time the brand leader at, at AT&T, responsible for the Olympics. And through that introduction, we were were given a, a huge contract to do a, a bunch of innovative work for AT&T around the Olympics.
0: And, uh, <clears throat> some of that work involved, um, I believe the, the first use of, of flash and Java in banners and advertising.
1: I don't, th- I don't think flash existed yet. We were, um, I think the the program that we used at the time was called Director, which I believe was a precursor to Flash. Mm-hmm. So we did some of the first animated banners, where we we created uh, uh, four or five different Olympic events. So one was a three point shooting contest, another was a hundred yard hurdles, another was uh, a platform diving contest, and people could use the arrow keys on their um, on their keyboard to control the characters in the banners, and then the the the, the character would come compete in something he would finish an event you would get a score and then we would connect you to a scoreboard and you would have to register in order to have your um, score posted to the scoreboard but in the first week i think we had about forty-four thousand registrations from those banners Um, Mm. so just an extraordinary number of people that that did that we also um we put i think six to eight live video cameras around the global olympic village so um you know we put one camera behind the scenes where athletes were hanging out and we put canvases up so um and and put paint out so so athletes could come and paint and if you were you know if you were in seattle you could watch uh, olympic athletes painting on canvases from from three or four thousand miles away there's a lot of innovative things that happened then we put together a um uh, a CD-ROM that had a, a, a replica of the Global Olympic Village fully rendered in 3D so that you could walk through the environment and meet characters and um, participate in events. We put a, a, a music and video editing studio in the, on the CD-ROM so that you could take photographs of the Olympics from NBC, seam them together edit them to music that we provided, and then you could send what we called interactive postcards to your friends from the CD-ROM. So your friend would receive an attachment in email that had this this slideshow, this animated slideshow or video from Olympic events that also had music behind it. And you know, these things were, you, you would click on them in your email and it would take an hour to download for some people, but everything was so new and so fresh then that, that people did it.
0: You, you had really good engagement rates with <clears> those.
1: <throat> yeah, we really did
0: um i I know this is gonna seem like I'm yada yada your your career here because you've had a long and and distinguished career in online advertising and marketing and stuff, but um while I still have you, even though we're gonna jump way beyond our our timeline here, I wanted to ask you about a few other projects that I noticed from your c v that that you were involved with um can you tell me about um with your your current company Wonder Factory I believe um you were involved with the original launch of Huffington Post?
1: yeah well actually they the the Huffington Post launched um initially before we did any work for them, and it didn't have any kind of advertising or really any kind of a revenue model um and it, and it was really just a few a few screens with some guest blogs um, We were brought in by um Ken Lair and introduced Ariana huffington and and at the time the what she described to us was that she she wanted to Enhance the site and build an experience that would be kind of the progressives' answer to the Drudge Report. So, you know, at the time, Matt Drudge was was growing in popularity. He controlled a lot of traffic on the web. And um, what Arianna said is that, you know, I I want to, I want a place where progressives can go and hold the same kinds of conversations. And damn it, I want it to look a lot better than the Drudge Report. So that was kind of the initiative she gave us. My my partner David Link and I. Um, prior to starting the wonder factory we we worked at aol and one of the projects we worked on with a a, a very large team was kind of moving aol from their subscription model where they were carpet bombing the world with discs mm-hmm. um on and on, onto an html experience you know kind of a, more of a, a web supported model as opposed to a a subscription supported model so another thing that we were asked to do by the huffington post was kind of help them figure out what their advertising and, and revenue model was going to be
0: and um so you were involved in basically building out the site in terms of, you know, uh, getting the ad servers together and getting the, the the content channels verticals together?
1: No, we we were we were responsible with with brainstorming with them and gathering requirements and figuring out what the, what, cha- what the channels would be and figuring out what the advertising experience would be. Mm-hmm. But they had a pretty good technology group that handled the ad servers and and you have to remember besides you know, besides Arianna Huffington and Karen Lara being directly involved, Jonah Peretti mm-hmm. was also um, one of our clients at the time. So we, we had a pretty, I, I, I'm very proud of that work. And I'm—and I'm, and for us, the, the first project we ever worked on at the Wonder Factory was a Huffington Post. And it was kind of a, a nice form of imprinting for us because everybody that, that met us after that wanted right. us to do something revolutionary the way we did for the Huffington Post. But they had a lot of smart people there, so I don't want to take too much credit for their success.
0: <laughs> no problem. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, also in the in the chapter episodes for this uh, for the section, um, I actually went in a little bit to uh, the Weather Channel and how it was uh, an unlikely early web success, and that's continued on with their, you know, embracing the the app universe now. And were you involved uh, with with the Weather Channel launching their apps?
1: Well. Yeah, we were when um, at the end of 2009 they they hired us to do a redesign of their of their website. So at, at first we were we were focused on the website only. Um, and around no, October and November of 2010, we put a video up on the web showing um, what the Sports Illustrated experience could be if Apple were to launch a larger, Device like the like an iPhone only with a larger screen, and what a what a touch magazine experience would be. And then when uh, when Apple confirmed that they were going to launch the tablet, uh, we were asked by the Weather Channel to adapt some of the the work we were doing for their website so that they could launch their app in time for the um, the launch of the, the the iPad. So we we actually started that project forty days before the launch of the um the iPad. And we called it product no Project Noah.
0: Mm. And so then that also led to helping with the launches of of a bunch of magazines like Sports Illustrated and Fortune and things like that
1: yeah we did uh, right out of the gates we did you know time time launched with the with the iPad and then soon after we followed with Sports Illustrated people fortune travel and leisure um, food and wine uh, those were the the big timing brands that we launched with
0: what were some of the decision design decisions and technical decisions that went in into that I mean obviously you're thinking about you know the size of the downloads and and things like that, but also trying to replicate, are you trying to replicate what's what's being done in a magazine on a tablet or are you trying to do something different what was what was the
1: thinking there you know what we 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 were trying not to replicate a magazine on a tablet as much as we could um well, well there are things that we were trying to replicate um no doubt that the, the print design when you compare it to the average digital design is elegant mm-hmm. so we we, we wanted to make sure that whatever we designed for our magazine clients would, would look as elegant as anything you could find on the web. So a, a big part of that effort, you know, forgetting about what the app was like, a big part of that effort was identifying a technology partner that we could work with. And eventually we worked with a company called Woodwing out of the Netherlands. We, we had to build up a, a platform that would sync with the Time, Inc. Uh, workflow so that their their traditional creative teams could, you know, ship a magazine to the, the, the printer on a Tuesday night and then have an turn around and start developing the app so they could have the app in the app store on Thursday morning when the print magazines hit the newsstand. So a big a big part of it, besides the design and figuring out the, the interaction model and what we were going to deliver consumers, was also figuring out how do we develop a platform that makes it easier for these traditionally trained print teams to also Designed these brilliant apps, and by by supplementing those print teams with some people with some pretty good digital knowledge as well, I, I think we're able to create a, a pretty good experience that 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 the teams could turn around very quickly.
0: Um, <clears throat> again, this is slightly off topic, but I'm I'm curious for your thoughts. What do you think of the state of of magazines and periodicals <clears throat> on on things like the iPad? Has has it lived up to its potential or? What do you, what do you think of the current state there?
1: I, I I don't I don't think it has and 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 there's the there's a hundred different reasons you know you could look for plenty of people to blame but I, I think it's more circumstantial right now. There's uh, there are a lot of companies that are creating a lot of apps and and they're using different platforms to create the apps. So there there's no simple way for an advertiser, no simple way right now for an advertiser to make one buy, and distribute an immersive, tablet worthy digital advertising experience across a bunch of, of magazine apps. So what's happening, what happened because of that is a lot of advertisers decided, well, you know, shit, we'll just we'll take our print ad from the print magazine and we'll put it into the digital magazine. And because the 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 publisher can't promise us that they're actually increasing their audience, it's just, you know, people are migrating from print to the web, we're not buying new bodies, mm-hmm. we'll just make that part of a value add. So I think a lot of magazine brands invested heavily in creating really beautiful immersive app experiences and then they weren't able to support them with a revenue model because advertisers had no easy way of inserting immersive ads into tablets. So I I think a lot of publishers found themselves stuck. You know, we we did a, a presentation at a conference about, um, I guess it was about a year ago. And we showed what magazines were capable of doing within three months of the launch of the iPad. And, and if you saw this reel, it's pretty amazing what magazines were capable of. And then we showed another video of what advertising had, how advertising had evolved since the launch of the iPad. And it was pretty pathetic. Mm. So I, I think magazine, some magazine brands really stepped up and really tried to create some brilliant experiences, but they just weren't able to support it with, with revenue. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Could Apple perhaps be a little more supportive of of making magazine reading on on these tablets
1: a success? Perhaps making magazine reading or advertising. Well,
0: both. I mean, just just in the sense that, like, that was the promise, right? That maybe we'd all get our magazines on our tablets now, and 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 everything would move over there. And it sort of hasn't happened. And and you're you're describing that it's still sort of a fragmented, especially for for advertisers to buy. Um, maybe the platform there there could be a different different design to the platform through Apple or something. I don't know. It's an open ended question,
1: but. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to blame Apple, but I, I, I would suspect that there's probably a lot more Apple could be doing to help publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every every app that appears on an iPad goes through the App Store, and and it, it it just feels like, with with their technological capability and their inventiveness, there would be a way to create some sort of an immersive ad serving model that magazines could benefit by.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'd like to wrap up with, again, another probably horrible open-ended question, but every time I talk to people, uh, we're talking about things that were 20 years ago and are, are coming up on 20 years. And so for you, I'd like to ask just, you know, the general, how do you feel about the state of of marketing, digital marketing and advertising today? I mean, you've been through now you know the rise of of social, and now we're into mobile and things. Where where do you see <clears throat> digital marketing and digital advertising as it is today? Is it everything that it promised it could be? Where are we going?
1: You know, I I think it's come really far, really fast in just twenty years. Um, I I'm I'm proud of that first banner, and I'm I'm proud of the the results it generated. And I and I think after that banner, there were many many good experiences that were created after that um but but i i think that when i look at the banner today it's representative of the dark ages of advertising you know this is the year 1300 in advertising if if the banner is the best we could do but I, i i feel great hope i think that um just like with the original dark ages it's going to be followed by a renaissance um when you look at what advertisers are doing today i get encouraged a lot by um uh, it, it's going to take me a long time to answer this Brian i'm sorry no no please but if, That's it's open ended yeah if if you look at this massive migration of consumers from from print through the tablet on you know through the web and now onto mobile phones um, you know the vast majority of content that gets cons- cons- consumed over a screen is consumed over a smartphone or a or, or a tablet mm-hmm. and and we know that banner advertising just doesn't work on the mobile phone and it probably never will because people that are on mobile phones are focused on getting things done And and when you're really focused on a task, you don't want to be interrupted by an idiotic banner. And and most clicks on banners today are by accident. So I think what advertisers are learning that if they want to get a consumer's attention, they have to be in the content space. And so there's been a lot of experimentation happening in mobile with advertisers in the content space. And it's starting to generate some pretty good results. And and it's like this wave that crashes off a seawall and then goes back into the ocean I think advertisers are learning, you know, if content works in mobile, why wouldn't it work on the web? And why wouldn't it work in print? Why wouldn't it work in any media? Why don't we take a publisher's attitude or a media company's attitude toward our advertising and create experiences that are helpful and useful and entertaining and illuminating and 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 and, and, and really, you know, create an experience that consumers can immerse themselves in? And and we're seeing the early days. You know, you hear talk about ad, about native advertising and mm-hmm. content marketing, and and a lot of it is bad, but a lot of it is really good. And and I and I think that I, I think more and more marketers are learning that content really works as long as you create it with the same kind of intentions that a publisher approaches. You know, publishers try to help people. They they know that they're constantly trying to sell you. You're going to turn your back on them. And I think advertisers are learning the same lesson. Um, so we're, we're all schooled in college, you know, focus on the consumer, focus on their needs, satisfy their needs and your advertising will be more successful. Rarely does that ever happen, but in the content space, if you're going to be successful, you have to do that. And I think more and more advertisers are starting to step up. They're learning to the lesson, they're putting in the practice and, and we're going to see some amazing experiences that I think the other thing that encourages me besides the fact that advertisers are, are learning about the value of content is the value of data now, you look at all the devices that people are wearing today, whether it's a heart monitor or an insulin pump or even, you know, a, a, a GPS watch if, if you're running, the, the kinds of experiences that that advertisers can create for people based on the data that they're throwing off, you know, provided people agree to, to share their data with an advertiser, I, I think is is going to be amazing. Um, and, and we're going to see content experiences that are highly customized and highly personalized for individuals. Um, that that people will become addicted to.
0: Why do you think there's so much hand-wringing about things like native advertising? Is it just the idea that somehow the consumer won't be smart and they'll be tricked into being advertised to or uh, is it, it it's or is it just a generational thing like breaking down the old thinking and and going into this new paradigm?
1: I, I have a couple thoughts there. I I think one of the reasons for the hand-wringing is that um, now you're you're mixing advertising content with editorial content, and and up until now, advertising has always been separate. It's a thirty second spot. It's a radio ad, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a, it's a print ad that that's on its own page, and, and consumers always had the ability to opt out of it if they wanted to. Now that that advertiser content is being merged with publisher content, if you if you as a publisher you don't make it clear. To the consumer what's advertising it and what's genuine content, if you allow them to get confused, you're just going to shoot yourself in the head. Because like all advertising, most native advertising is going to be bad. It, it's inevitable. There, there, there's nothing that's going to fix that. It, it's going to happen. And as a publisher, if you're going to allow mostly bad content to mingle with your mostly good content, you're going to average out at mostly mediocre. So it, I, I think where the hand comes in is as a publisher, you owe it to yourself to make sure that there's no doubt in a consumer's mind what's your editorial content that's been completely fact-checked and what's advertising content. On the other hand, if you're an advertiser and you're creating the same kind of crap in native advertising as you do on TV or print or direct mail, you're wasting your money just like you are in TV and print and mail. If, if you're going to be close to a publisher's content, you've, you've, you've got to create your content to be as good as or better than what that publisher turns out.
0: So there's got to be a a much much deeper partnership now than f- between the 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 publisher and and the advertiser. It can't just be we'll we'll sell the ads and and don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, I, I I believe that. I think I think there are still a lot of publishers that would say no. The business side and the editorial side will will never get in the same room together. That's a mistake. And, and I I understand publishers that have that concern. Um, I, I wish they could get over it because I, I think, I, I think I'm not saying that editorial staff should be creating content for advertisers, but the knowledge that editorial staff has about what constitutes good content can only help advertisers. And and you think about it, if if you're if you have a a, a magazine, or if you have a digital app or a website today, and you've got advertisers that are contributing fantastic content to your experience. It's good for everybody. It's good for the user. It's good for the advertiser. It's good for you as a publisher because your advertising is going to be creating a tremendous amount of page views. You're getting more inventory. You're able to monetize it better. So I, I wish publishers would work harder to help advertisers be great. And and I don't think they're doing it well enough right now.
0: Well, uh, Joe McCambly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, remembering all this for us.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me, Brian be well. If you're enjoying this
0: podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review, because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.